Hey everyone, and welcome to the Master Retention Podcast, presented by UserWise, the live ops engine for your game. Today we have Amir Dori joining us. Uh, he'll be talking to Tom about attracting new players with quality game design. So it's going to be a lot of things just on just focused on game design. Uh, and Amir Dori is absolutely qualified to talk about game design. He's a lecturer for game design at Mentor College and head of game design over at SciPlay. I personally have learned a lot from reading Amir's content online. He has some fantastic blog posts and articles on game UI and psychology and how to just improve your uh, your metrics and KPIs just using, using uh, design to your advantage. Uh, I think it's going to be a good one. Uh, so feel free to turn up the volume and enjoy. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Amir Dori, who is... Head of game design at SciPlay now. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exciting <laughs> stuff. Um, <laughs> so we're gonna delve into all sorts of things. Something you may not know about Amir is he's actually a lecturer at a college. So you know, we're we're getting access to you know collegiate level courses here. So I'm pretty excited about today's uh, conversation. Um, but before we you know delve into the wonderful world of game design, Amir, I always start, like to ask you know. What's your story? Like, how'd you get into, you know, working in games? Well, okay. So, so first of all, thank you for the introduction. Actually, it's a long story, so I will spare <laughs> off the details. Uh, but, you know, it's like, it started a lot before I even knew that there is like a, a title or a job, like as a game designer. Um, you know, I'm based in Israel. Mm-hmm. In Israel, by the age of 18, uh, all of the people, all of the citizens are actually going to the army. For uh, males are going three years, uh, women are going two years. Now it's a bit uh, different. But even before joining the army by the age of 17, uh, I was actually creating games. But they were like, you know, in PowerPoint presentations, like uh, user choices, you know, navigate to slide <clears throat> 30 or to slide 40 according to the user choice. Uh, I had uh, my past experience as an animator, but a really mediocre one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, doing a lot of animations uh, in Flash, Adobe Flash. So also there, I uh, injected some user choices. Well, how do you like you would like this animation to end? You know, and then the user can choose the end of the animation, the scenario. Um, so not really games, right? But uh, after uh, I finished the army, so uh, I joined the high tech company. It was a startup back in the days, by 2007, and there was an, a, a Flash a developer. You know, back in the days, Flash mm-hmm. was, yep. a, it was a job, a Flashy. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I know how to animate. I know how to code. I learned XMCP2, XMCP3, so I object on the development. And I started to create then, actually, interactive experiences, a rich media campaigns, rich media banners for lots of advertisers. Uh, and then I actually injected lots of actual games, like racing games, mm-hmm. uh, more than just user choices for rich media campaigns. And uh, I really liked the opportunity of creating an interactive experience and, uh, you know, to see the data behind it, how it actually increased the, uh, uh, you know, uh, sales in the, in the case of an advertiser or uh, any other engagement, like, you know, filling out a form. Um, and I learned a lot from being an interactive specialist. It was under a marketing department uh, in this company named MediaMind. Mm. Uh, nothing that is actually truly connected to games per se. Uh, 
<laughs> but <laughs> in 2009, I, I was there until 2012. In 2009, in parallel, I said, okay, I really into the gaming world. I'm a gamer myself. Uh, let's try to do some things as an indie you know, game developer. And I'm, I'm a creative person. I, uh, rather than just the ideas, I also, as I told, I can animate. I'm doing graphic design. So I was able to program plus do all of the UI and screens for the products. Mm -hmm. I only needed someone to help me with, uh, you know, native language of the uh, iPhone, for example, which was not my uh, core uh, knowledge. So I made some partnership with the software house. Uh, it was actually an interesting, interesting story because I developed in ExxonScript, which is slash language, mm -hmm. and then they uh, configured this, translated the language into iOS language, the Xcode. And um, so I published several uh, independent games as an officially, you know, head of a game designer, but without calling it a game designer. Mm. Uh, one of the very stupid <laughs> projects that I published back in the days was uh, an app, which is still live up, up today, uh, which is named uh, iWatermelon the Look. Mm. Uh, actually, this app, you're taking your uh, phone, you're placing it on a watermelon, and you tap the watermelon three times, and then the app can tell you if the watermelon is ripe or not. By the oh, wow, <laughs> yeah, interesting. It's nonsense, of course, right? It's not. It's not the exact science, but it's not a complete nonsense. It's just uh, giving you a gamified experience of shopping <laughs> for watermelons in the supermarket. Yeah. So you see people taking their phone, knocking the watermelons, and then, <laughs> you know, calculating data and telling you if the watermelon is perfect or not, if you should keep it or not. Um, and it was, by the way, it was number one app in uh, Greece, in Israel, in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, in Taiwan, it was a big hit in the news because watermelons are very expensive there, uh, apparently. Um, and it's a funny story because the development of this app was about one week. The graphic design for all of the screens in additional one week, you know, including screenshots, icons, description text, and so on and so forth. Uh, and it, it made a lot of money, <laughs> more, <laughs> more than we even anticipated, just because it was so innovative, or let's say it was so extraordinary. So it mm -hmm. hit the news. And it hit the news in the uh, written media, in the news uh, flash, you know. Uh, of course, it was viral back in the days in YouTube. Uh, people were testing this, uh, not, not just on watermelons, but also, for example, a pregnant woman tested uh, with the app, tested uh, her belly. Uh, someone also tested her uh, chest <laughs> to see if uh, uh, this watermelon is perfect or not. And actually, it was a, a very nice uh, application, very entertaining one. Uh, but besides of the nonsense, also lots of core games, let's say, for casual games, uh, hidden uh, object games, uh, puzzle games. Uh, and I really fell in love with uh, the scope of being uh, an indie game developer. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then I decided by 2012 to leave MediaMind and to be completely independent uh, for two years just to, to offer some rich media, uh, you know, services, let's say, for uh, someone who wants a rich media campaigns, the flash banners, web designs, videographic and so on and so forth, but mainly to have some time to focus on creating new games. Um, to continue the, the path, so by 2000, 
2013, by the end of 2013, eventually I joined Tabdel. These days they are known as the Crazy Lab. Yep. You probably know them for sure. Uh, based in Tel Aviv in Israel. And uh, the, I was able to join there because of my past experience from being an indie game developer. And the reason that I wanted to pause a little bit what I did as a, a sole individual and to join another company is that I saw that the market become very, very data-driven and you need lots of money, you know, and for people, companies. Yeah. And, yeah, and people, exactly. So I said, okay, I want to learn and I need to learn. So by joining a company, I can learn from the analytics team, I can learn from other game designers, I can learn from the developers and so on and so forth. Um, and, and then I grew up within the company. So I started as a creative developer, which is actually game designer without calling it a game designer. Uh, then after one year, it actually changed officially to be a game designer. Yep. And by the end, I was uh, the lead game designer in Tabdel's most uh, successful studio, a kids fan club back in the days. Uh, also, I uh, managed people and uh, hired people uh, abroad in uh, Macedonia mainly uh, and raised a team of new game designers uh, to be there. And I left them, I left Tabdel by 2016. And this is also a nice story because the reason <laughs> that I left them was that my former manager, my former boss from MediaMind, he called me and said, hey, I'm now the CEO of a new company and educational company named Matific. And we are creating games, but we are actually missing a lot of knowledge in creating games. So the outcome is that we are actually creating some nice activities uh, interactive experiences, let's say, that are, uh, have some uh, very deep pedagogy, but not so engaging, not really talking with the same language of kids and what is the industry standard for games. And they really lacked the experience of a game designer per se. So I said, okay, this is a challenge. They don't have this animal, you know, a game designer in the company at all. I have an opportunity to join them. And of course, it, it was to work with my favorite, uh, you know, boss, <laughs> which I appreciate uh, from back in the days. So I said, okay, I'm going to embrace this opportunity. And by 2016, I joined Matific, uh, which is a startup, an educational company that is dealing with uh, mass education for kids on, from kindergarten until grade six, uh, creating thousands of activities because for every grade, you have a different curriculum. And in every country, you have a different curriculum for this same grade. For example, the curriculum for Grade four in Israel is not the same as grade four in Australia. So mm -hmm. we have all of the curriculum uh, from the Ministry of Education. What does it mean from their aspect or, uh, for a kid in grade four uh, to be able to declare that they know math for grade four? We got all of the list of all of the curriculum. And per each item in the curriculum, we created uh, different activities that are teaching this exact thing. And by teaching, I don't mean just to let them, uh, you know, practice it, but actually to experience it, to learn and to know how mathematics work because of their intrinsic motivation. The game was their goal. The, the flow of the game, the story, the narrative, the characters, they were on a mission, for example, to be master chef, and they need to bake some you know, cake um, um, in order to win the competition. Yeah. But, you know, the path to do this was that you are a sous chef and the chef is asking you, okay, so we have 
eight egg templates. And in each template, we have eight eggs. So how many eggs do we have? So I'm not really asking the kid uh, eight times eight, what is the answer, right or wrong, you know, <laughs> and then just uh, utilizing gamification, lean gamification, you know, with scores and badges and so on. But actually, we need to know the answer in order to progress. And we have uh, motivation because everything was very, very intrinsic. And then, of course, after several activities with a concrete theme and metaphor, then we, we allowed ourselves to have more uh, abstract uh, worksheets, let's say, because it's also part of the curriculum. Uh, but we encountered the kids with the abstract uh, worksheets only after we made sure that during the past they encountered the, the right metaphor, the right experience, and they are actually learning through games. And this is very interesting uh, way of, you know, learning. It's becoming very, very trendy and popular because it's proven kids are actually learning a lot, exploring yeah. a lot, you know, with, by games. And here, when you're playing game, although it's a math game, but it doesn't look like a math test, but it's an actual game with goals and motivations and factors, as I said. So your motivation and your goal is different. And you're playing, and even if you did a mistake, you don't think that you failed. You don't think that you, you're stupid. You know, fear of failure uh, for kids is very, very uh, something that they are frightened uh, from. Uh, but here, if you're failing in a game, okay, try again. <laughs> you know, like in games, like in every game that you got busted, yeah, you, you got killed or whatever, and you need to try again instantly. So the feedback is instant. They're trying on the spot, and then they're utilizing another strategy okay, what I did wrong, how I can overcome this challenge. And not just, do you know the solution? Like, you know, teachers are asking in school. And uh, also what I learned from this company is, is really nice because, you know, usually most of the game designers are B2C oriented. Usually, not all of them. Also, for example, in Tabdel or as an indie game developer, and the consumer market is the one that we are approaching. But here, because it's an educational product, so they had two different branches, the B2B and the B2C. And the B2B, of course, is what the product that was sold for uh, school, you know, and then you are actually having salespersons, not just not marketing people, but actual salespersons who are going and conducting meetings with the school principals, with the Ministry of Education, with the, you know, uh, district leaders and so on and so forth in order yep. to close deals. And then it's, you're getting into lots of schools and, and you don't really need to sell yourself aggressively, you know, by uh, lots of uh, rewarded videos or lots of, uh, you know, interstitials and so on and so forth. But you're just closing the deals and then the experience can be very, very soft, very, very engaging and much more naive, let's say, in terms of game design. Mm-hmm. Not with all of the promotions and selling and the aggressiveness of, you know, dark weeks, let's say. <laughs> uh, but on the other hand, <laughs> uh, they also pitched for uh, the B2C uh, uh, track, let's say, because, you know, parents who want to download an app for their kids or even kids uh, that want to practice and to learn math, they just download the games and uh, practice them. And I can tell now from this perspective that... Uh, the company had some very good decision of uh, making a change rather than uh, maintaining two tracks of B2C and B2B. 
Yeah. It was a very good decision to combine them. And as a senior game designer, I was the senior game designer of Montific. I was, let's say, at first in charge of the game design aspects of three different departments. The first one was the B2B product, then the B2C product, and then the content, all of the activities that are creating, because you know the content is the food and the product are the, is the restaurant that is serving the food. So everything is a game, but there is like the meta game and the games themselves, activities themselves. But yeah. rather than maintaining two different tracks with two different developers, uh, development teams and two different, you know, QA teams and two different product managers and so on and so forth, we just, you know, decided about one and a half year ago, uh, maybe even two years ago, to, to embrace the approach of one product to rule them all. And we combined everything into a new meta game. And mm. then... It really depends on the user. If you are a parent, if you are a teacher, if you are a student in class or student in home, you can just choose your uh, portfolio, your profile, sorry, and the game features were locked or unlocked according to the specifications. But it's just one single product and then all of the marketing efforts, the development efforts, the QA efforts, the product efforts, everything was focused on this specific product. So it was a really, really good decision. Yeah, uh, and you know, as an evergreen product, it's really you're also ben- making a huge benefit from selling it to schools because then the kids in school are getting exposed to a product which probably they was hard to find in the app store organically. Because if you will write, you know, like math games, you will get thousands of applications, tens of thousands. Yep. Of but sorry for the language, most of them are. <laughs> but if it, it comes from this, it's kind of like the college books, you know, <laughs> your professor says to get this one and that's the one that you get, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and it's also competing with, you know, a board with a chalk. So it's like a million dollars. They really love it. And then they are continue to play in home and they can play with their friends and their parents are also exposed to this product. So it, it really was a great decision uh, to have this shift, let's say. In the product aspect. Yeah. Uh, so to continue the story, <laughs> in Matifica, I was a single game designer for five and a half years. And only, let's say, three, three and a half months ago, I joined Typeline. Mm. And, and this was also a nice opportunity uh, how I met uh, Typeline and how this opportunity uh, came. And I was, as, as I started this conversation, the, uh, I'm actually a lecturer also in parallel. I'm a lecturer uh, for game design, uh, teaching uh, lots of uh, frameworks and best practices and models, you know, Bartel player types, Doctalysis framework, the Hunter model, uh, achievement system, best practices for UX, and so on and so forth from my, you know, uh, diverse knowledge and past experience by working in, in these companies. And uh, as a lecturer, I was invited to Typeplate to have a course of game design for the lots of product managers, directors, the general managers, and so on. Uh, after uh, I uh, was teaching the course here in uh, Typeplate, um, one of uh, you know the participants uh, approached me, a person that I really really uh, admire, and uh, he said, "Look, there is a nice opportunity of joining Typeplate." because now the company is making a, a reorganization. Uh, if you know Cyplay, Cyplay is uh, yeah, back in the day, is heavily based on uh, slot machines, uh, social casino games, 
and uh, this was the main portfolio of the company. But uh, only by January this year, they decided to have a reorganization and to take all of the social casino games under a social casino division and to open a casual games division. Mm-hmm. And, and this was the opportunity that was offered to me to join the casual games division as the head of game design. And I can explain <laughs> later <laughs> what exactly does it mean in terms of what are the, you know, the role, what is exactly the role and uh, what is, uh, the aspect of the, the role of how. Yeah. Uh, but so, this is the story <laughs> of how I came here. I love that. So funny little tidbit. Um, I actually went to college in Cedar Falls, Iowa, which is like basically no man's town, but guess what? Cyplay is actually so you know Cyplay. Exactly. I, I do know Cyplay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah. Well, that's cool. So I guess at, at what stage did you kind of come in? Like they wanted to launch these casual studios or are you kind of building the studio, building the team? Did you kind of join the existing one halfway there? Like where's it at? You know, story-wise. So, so I, I, I joined in a very great situation because, again, because of the organization, what they did is that they have, uh, for example, uh, three existing games, three existing studios under this new casual games division. But very quickly after I joined, they acquired a new company uh, from Turkey. Their name uh, is Elixus. Uh, they are doing hyper-casual games. Um, and you know, now the division is uh, four different studios. And you know, in the future, who, <laughs> we, we can't uh, never say what will happen. <laughs> so the, the timing was perfect because the role was uh, a non-existing role. Okay, I had to, to design it by myself, to shape it, to, to bring all of the content and the, the responsibility is how I think that this role should act, what is the actual vision uh, and what I will do. No one actually t- told me, okay, you should have one, two, three, four, but hey, guys, <laughs> I need you to think what you can contribute, <laughs> what are the values that you can bring in, what is the process, the procedures, uh, how do you want to define the world? And actually, I actually gave it a lot of thought because, you know, no one wants another chef in the kitchen. And to come from a perspective of saying, okay, guys, I'm a senior game designer. I will overview all of your game design and I will tell you what to do. No, <laughs> for sure. This is not my approach, not my vibe. And I learned that with every studio. For example, I have a studio in Finland, a studio in Turkey, a studio in uh, Austin, and a studio here in Tel Aviv. So with every studio, the skills are different. The methodologies are a bit different. Um, the game, for sure, are different. The processes are different. So with every studio, I'm just learning what are exactly you know, the people, what they can bring to the table, and what I can complete, how we can empower the design, where is the freedom, where I'm just suggesting things, but not as tasks you know, to do, or where I want to, to be a little bit more, you know, I don't to say assertive, but more knowledgeable and say, look, guys, been there, done that, I know, from my past experience, uh, that this won't work as is, and we better shape it to be, you know, in this direction rather than another one. So this is one thing like to be a consultant as, as a matrix manager in the division level, okay? But it's not a consultant from outside, it's a consultant from inside. And then it allows me to see that if one feature or one, uh, you know, A-B test that we did and the results were very good, um, uh, 
if, if we won in one uh, aspect of game design in one studio, I can then embrace it and you know, uh, bring it into other games in my same uh, division. Also the, the knowledge sharing to be like the, the focal point because the studios are also talking between themselves, but you know, on the day-to-day -day basis, they are very focused on what they need to, to deliver. So it allows me to have a more holistic view about the, all of the games in, at once, and then to, to allow myself to share the knowledge with them, to tell them what I know that is working, that is not working, and so on. Uh, more than just consulting, it's actually to be an additional brain power, an additional resource of game design. I, I'm a senior game designer <laughs> for my, you know, what I've done. And if someone is needing more than just my opinion, but needing actually my help, with, you know, keeping my hands dirty and dive in <laughs> and <laughs> to help with the design, this is what I'm doing. Uh, even to empower what I just said. <laughs> I can add to my title that for now I'm the head of game design, but also the acting director of product in one of the studios because they have this open position of a director of product. A few months that we didn't, uh, couldn't find any good candidates uh, to date. So uh, I took the opportunity to be the acting director of product for this specific studio. And I'm actually working with the product managers and with the people you know, even diving into the Jira and the, the roadmap and the suggesting or creating or envisioning the retention plan for one specific product, for example, and to, to, to take tasks out of this uh, plan. So it's actually not just, you know, to float around and zoom out, but actually to dive in and really, really help. So this is one of the core, let's say, strengths of this position. Yeah. And, and also because, because of my, as I said, my diverse knowledge and past experience, also to give best practices and to make sure that I somewhat unifying the methodologies of the game design, let's say direction between the different studios. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and this is really, really helping. <laughs> Again, I am only here for three and a half months, something like this, but uh, you, you can see that I want to be honest, but what I'm hearing from others is that I'm bringing a lot of value and, and it's really productive and helping. So I'm very super happy. It was like yeah. beyond expectations, you know, by joining SiteLay and helping so many people at once. So, you know, I know you've got this really extensive educational gaming background, which I think you're the first person to have on the show. So I have a lot of questions related to that. Um, sure. I, I'm kind of curious, like, what are the differences in game design between like educational games and say casual games? Okay. Um, to start from the end, all of the KPIs are completely different. If I'm, if I'm talking about casual games, you know, all of the day one retention and the <clears throat> how you really want to see uh, data in order to validate your product. Here it's a little bit different when you're talking about the educational or it's more. I don't want to say anything bad about the casual games, of course, I'm working in this <laughs> industry, but in the educational world, it's a little bit with more, let's say, novelty. So first of all, you, it's not like the metrics are the king, but the pedagogy is the king. First of all, is how to teach right, how the experience is right in terms of learning. And then only after the pedagogy is there, the game is serving the pedagogy and not otherwise. 
And it's it really it's challenging, but it's really, really interesting because a lot of times when I'm working as a sole game designer, I'm the father and the mother of this project. It's my idea, my production, you know, and then just need to get some green light from the you know, senior management and that's it. Uh, when you're working in an educational company, I'm not a mathematician. I'm not uh, coming, I, I don't have any academic degree, by the way. <laughs> so I'm working with a, a board of uh, uh, pedagogical, you know, uh, people, professors and so on. And it's like on every project, two people are working on it together. Here in the casual world, it's, I, if to give the reference, it's like the economy manager and the game designer, which all the product, which are working together, you know? So in the educational world, it's the instructional designer and the game designer. The instructional designer is ensuring that the pedagogy is fitting and is really there. Mm-hmm. And the game designer is there to serve the pedagogy. But sometimes, many times, the, the pedagogy is limiting or they will tell you, okay, the story is nice. The interactivity, the uh, interactivity is nice, but it's creating some misconception uh, that the geometry shapes are only blah blah blah. So you have to to drop the idea. But it's a good idea, but you have to drop it because you don't want to create any misconception in pedagogy. It's really something that it's like um, you know, like uh, uh, holy <laughs> the feeling of <laughs> you are making something that you must not uh, you know fail there. Um, there are also a lot of other aspects, for example, um, all of the politically correct aspects of the pedagogical or the educational world that are not really exist in the casual game industry. Uh, you know, no, if, you, if you're having some interactivity with a food, for example, so no meat, you can't show meat. Everything must be vegetarian. Uh, if you're showing people, so in terms of gender or race, they need to be really, really equal. In Matific, for example, we solved it very, very nicely by having all of our characters as monsters, like Sesame Street, for imagine. So, you know, no gender there, no race there, no anything that can someone, you know, can judge or object. But even though when one of the characters is wearing a shirt, for example, you had to make sure that uh, even if the uh, sleeves are short, so they will end like my sleeve and not, you know, here, like uh, you can show in some locales, you can show uh, exposed shoulders, for example. It's really, really up to this, you know, politically correct principles. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you have to, to make it because otherwise you will just, you know, shoot yourself in the leg. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, something very, very important. Uh, which can also bring a lot of uh, insight to, to ones who are listening right now. In the casual uh, field, most of the, the games are played on you know, tablets, mobile phones, and that's it. Uh, some of them also on PC. In the educational world, because we are also you know, a product that has been sold in school, so most of the games are played on uh, computers in school. You know? And then it really really, really um, comes into the concern about the bandwidth of the, the, the school uh, in terms of the internet bandwidth, uh, the size of the activity, the size of the product in terms of megabytes, because you, you encounter really often lots of performance issues and memory leakage, optimization issues, and slow loading times because their internet 
is very very poor, the devices are very very poor, and the hardware is very very poor, um, and then you have to design your game uh, according to these specific uh, specifications, because otherwise you will try to pitch uh, your product in uh, you know in a school in Brazil, for example, and you will open the demo or the actual product, and the loading time will be five minutes for one activity, and it, everything will be very very slow and. The, the experience is going to be so, so you won't close the deal like this. So in terms of how we are guiding our technical artists, for example, how to make the art very, very efficient, very, very optimized. It's like a key uh, success metric in order to, to reach school. Uh, how we are uh, compressing all of the, the episodes, all of the interactivities, all of the metagame, in order yeah. to download it very, very efficiently. It's really a key to success. Otherwise, it's a really hard world uh, to enter into schools. Lots of regulations, lots of problems regarding, you know, poor devices and so, so on. So this is a huge difference between the two. Gotcha. In, you know, casual casino type games and such, you know, live ops has become a really big part of that, you know, often accounting for 50 to 60% of revenue, sometimes upwards of 80% of revenue and driving really significant, you know, engagement and retention factors. Is live ops a thing in educational games, like daily challenges and, you know, what have that you kind of drive out there or not? So yes, actually, yes, but of course, for sure, not as the, for the MVP part. So the MVP part, when you are designing an educational product, you need to have the user progress, the flow, how they are going to load uh, the activities, how, what is the cost, you know, screen for the activity, how they're going to make a progress. But then you want to drive engagement, you want to drive retention, you want to drive curiosity. So usually we're adding on top of that uh, some, you know, achievement system, uh, daily missions, as you say, daily quests. Um, and then, the, but all of the missions are not just sugarcoating. They are actually there to support the pedagogy. So even I, as a game designer, when I'm designing an achievement system, then I'm asking my instructional designer, the pedagogical people, to, to give their opinion and to see if I actually serve the pedagogy. So for example, a good example for an achievement system in the educational world will be improve a score in three activities or, you know, replay uh, an acti uh, two activities because it's also important to practice the same activity not just to move on to the next one uh, so replay the same activity three times it can be a, a challenge uh, you know of course there are also the login x days encounter each characters and so on but mostly it will be around the pedagogy how i can support it by the achievement system also you mentioned a uh, live ops per se so for example event also something that we really want to utilize. But when you are an international company, uh, <clears throat> I'm talking only on the educational uh, world right now, uh, it's really hard to have uh, some event like in the casual game that is based on some you know, holiday, such as Thanksgiving or Easter egg or Christmas, because it's really local specific or even you know, it's touching areas of religion. And again, religion is a big no-no in the educational world. Uh, you know, what, what Muslim or Christian or Jewish people can do really, really differs. So you don't want to have any, you know, Christmas event for Jewish people, for example. Uh, you don't want to have Hanukkah event for <laughs> Muslim and so on and so forth. So the events are really around, uh, you know, spring events, winter events, summer Olympics, 
Matt Olympics, stuff like this. And there is a, a lot of uh, incentive in having this event system also in the educational world. Uh, of course, because kids are, you know, playing lots of games and it's becoming like a standard. And it's a standard. Yeah. You must have achievement system. You must have daily quests or daily challenges. You must have events. Yeah. Uh, they are just so used to it and we are utilizing this pattern also in the educational world. That's great. Interesting. Um, okay. So getting back towards casual games as you're kind of, you know, in this realm now, um, this is a new studio and obviously you guys are going to get into um, something that, you know, everyone gets into at some point, which is, you know, how do you iterate on new game ideas to figure out like what you should build, especially in today's market, which is, you know, kind of saturated with games. There's a lot of other choices that people can play and you're no longer really recruiting people that have never played a game to like start playing a game. It's like your game is going to steal them away from whatever they're currently playing. Right. So what, yeah, what's, what's your process for coming up with new game ideas and, and figuring out if they, you know, are worth exploring or not. So first of all, it's a great question because if I will compare it just for a glance to the education world, there, the game ideas coming from the curriculum. You have a specific you know, request from the, uh, the regions. They're asking you what uh, you need to, to teach. And then the idea is about your creativity. What, how do you want to teach? Okay? But you have the end goal of what you need to teach and not how you need, just a second. <clears throat> and in the casual world, uh, it's really different. So first of all, uh, for example, in other companies, I, I won't mention names, from this moment and on. <laughs> uh, it was like a marketing research. What are the next uh, Disney movies that are going to come out uh, you know, this year? Or what are the next great events? Uh, you know, is there a, a Mondial, a Super Bowl, an Olympic event, and so on, like you know, global events? <clears throat> and then you said, okay, there is going to be this huge movie about dragons from Disney, and they are going to play put tons of money about, uh, you know, marketing <laughs> dragons. <laughs> Let's make a game about dragons. But this is just, okay, so this is the theme. What's going to be the game itself? Then you need to start and, you know, propose uh, several ideas. In the hyper-casual game, a uh, world, for example, uh, then the process is very similar to what other, other casual uh, companies are doing. It's about creating a video before there's even a game. Once you have the idea, okay, let's try to see if the idea is, and let's create a video which is a demo of a yet-to-be-existing game, just demonstrating some gameplay. And uh, you're just, you know, you're buying, you know, 10,000 impressions, 50,000 impressions for this specific video. You're checking the CTR rate. And if you're seeing that the CTR and the CPI are good, uh, so you said, okay, validate that this idea has uh, interest from the people. And it's like, you know, making the the validation of, okay, let's actually develop uh, this game uh, to be more solid. Um, this is also becoming somewhat of an industry standard, you know, to try to create demos of games through advertisements before yeah. the game is even existing. Uh, but not, not all of the time you can actually, you know, if you have a really big game and not a lean experience, 
you can demonstrate everything and you don't want to invest lots of things there. So you are just doing lots of marketing research. And then the other approach that we are bringing into the table is to see, okay, you know, competitors analysis, what games are performing very well, what fraction of the market we can take, what share of the market we can take, and then how we can merge maybe two different, you know, successful things or meta game into a new innovative one. Uh, which is a great example because this is what we are doing in one of the studios right now, for example, making the next big innovative game, uh, which doesn't exist yet. <laughs> so it's actually like, okay, what's working? Let's take the components from what we know that is working in other games, but let's consolidate them into a new game, innovative one with a new approach. And we really believe that uh, this game is uh, valid. Of course, now the next stage is to create some, you know, marketing campaigns before the game is even there, just to see uh, the, the CTR rate and the CTI. So for the marketing kind of analysis competitor type stuff, like, are you guys using like a sensor tower, uh, data.ai, you know, different tools like that? Um, yeah, yeah. Game refinery data, yeah, up any formula. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, you know, on some of those early prototypes, have you ever found success with like playtests or, or like a playtest cloud, you know, different services like that? Okay. So, first of all, getting back to the educational world, it's going yep. to be a ping pong, basically. Uh, like one, of the, or one of the best things, really, the best thing in the educational world is that because you're dealing with kids, and I'm speaking also on kindergarten, right? So you can't really, it's not like, you know, cloud testing and so on that you can just uh, say, okay, I want five females, five males. I want them to be, you know, to, to have experience of playing uh, games X, Y, and Z and so on. So forth. You just, you know, kids, <laughs> you can't really select them. Uh, so in the educational world, uh, we had a lot of live uh, usability testing. We just invited into the company a complete class, you know, and then, you know, three, three different kids are uh, joining uh, for a day in the office, uh, giving them, you're giving them snacks and drinks, and then you're giving them to test new games before they are even out. And we are actually observing them, you know, like offline <laughs> and uh, writing exactly how they are playing. And one of the things that I actually learned from uh, the masterclass of uh, Will Wright is not to give a, a, a computer to one kid, like, one computer yeah. per kid, but to place two kids over the same computer and then to have turns between them. Because when one kid is playing, what they're doing, they're thinking out loud everything. They're saying, okay, now I will do this, I will do that. And the other one, which is their partner, tell them, no, no, don't click this, click here, click there. And you're actually hearing them thinking and explaining to each other and teaching each other. It's really much more you know, productive than just placing one kid in front of the computer and that's it. And uh, the big jackpot there is that uh, because it's uh, encouraged by the Ministry of Education, for example, is that we had an actually on-site event, like the mm. Math Olympics. And as a game designer, it was a heaven because you know, imagine that you're entering some hall and you are seeing 800 students from all over the country playing your games for six hours. And they are challenging and under competition to see which school is going to win and contribute more stars, blah, blah, blah. 
So actually you are observing all of them at once. 8,000 students playing your games, uh, not something that you, you can see in the you know, casual world, okay? Unless you're buying uh, 800 people to come to an offline <laughs> site and to observe them. So it really gives you lots of insights about, you know, also about bugs, right? Yep. <laughs> but about uh, how they're actually uh, utilizing your game, how they are playing your game. Most of the time, what we have in mind, what is the reality is totally different. And it's not like recording their mouth or watching the heat map. You're actually seeing them, what they are challenging and what they are facing. It's really, really nice. Uh, going back to the casual world, <laughs> there we have lots of different approaches. So first of all is, of course, as I said, cloud testing, for example, clouds and so on. So for services like that, so we can actually say, okay, for my solitary game, I want to have 10 females, 10 males, which yeah. know how to play Klondike Solitaire and I want them to <laughs> at least 30 minutes and I want them to wake up their sessions and I want them to think out loud and to write comments and then to answer a survey. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's one approach that uh, we are doing. Um, it gives a lot of insights. You just, you know, like, like any other approach, you have to, to take them very carefully because, you know, 10 people, it's not yeah. <laughs> like a mess. But... So you don't like take an iPad to the uh, nursing home and give it to my grandma and be like, well, if she can figure out this game, then, you know, anyone can. Exactly. Yeah. So I, actually, I, I gave some of the games to my mother to play. And uh, <laughs> I saw, I was so frustrated. <laughs> like, how obvious it is. It, it tells you, there is a tutorial that tells you click this button and she doesn't know what to do. <laughs> so... I, I blamed the language. I said, okay, she, she's not reading English very well. So, but, but then I said, okay, maybe we need to translate the game. I don't know. You know, just every time that you're seeing someone else playing your game, it really gives you tons of great insights. I, I'm, we're really embracing this approach of listening to our users. Uh, most of the time, we're actually forgetting that we are not the players of the games that we are making. Uh, <clears throat> for example, you know, one of the games... <laughs> name doesn't matter, uh, really facing females. Females, 35 years old, blah, blah, blah. I'm not a female uh, in this specific <laughs> segment. And when I'm playing the game, although I have some you know, vision and direction how I want to improve the game, I might be totally wrong. I need to listen more to the exact audience that I'm targeting. And uh, this is why we are actually approaching user testing uh, like video recordings or actually surveys and so on so i read a book one time about uh innovation in um i think it was png procter and gamble um one of the biggest like consumer type products uh providers in the world um and they, I think it was co-written with like an old CEO and the consultant that he brought in to like redo how they do innovation there. Um, and one of the stories that they brought up in that book um, was very fascinating to me. And it was about a, uh, a golf club company um, that created this golf club that they called the Big Bertha um, and how they came about doing that. So at that point in time, might've been like the, the nineties, maybe early two thousands. I think it was the nineties though. Um, they were looking to like make a new golf club 
at that point in time, maybe 10% of men in the U S was like the primary audience of people that played golf X, Y, and Z. And most other golf club companies, they looked at that 10% of guys and like, how can we make them like another club? And this other company said, well, let's look at the 90% of guys that aren't playing golf. And why not? Um, well, after they interviewed and talked to a whole bunch of guys, the general consensus was, I don't want to suck and look like an idiot in front of like my buddies or whatnot. Um, and so they, you know, iterated on that. And what was the, the most key thing? Well, a lot of guys would, you know, just slice the ball, like terrible, you know, off, off par on that initial tee. And, you know, if you do that in front of your buddies, you're going to get a, a lot of crap and <laughs> don't want to do that again. Um, and so they created again, a big the, the Phil fellow as I said in the educational world. This is awesome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so they made this big Bertha club, like huge, really head. And it was much harder to just do that terrible shot. Um, and they actually brought a lot of guys into golf. Not only did they do that though, a lot of the existing 10% guys, they had that same problem, but they weren't really aware of it. They just thought they kind of sucked at golf and had to figure out how to get better. But then in came this club that they could use and they could hit the ball better. And so a whole bunch of them bought the golf club too. And it was kind of this like innovation thing. And so if you think about that, like in games, um, candy crush, you know, I mean, there were other match threes before, but candy crush really came in and redefined it for mobile. Right. Um, but I think there was a, a large number of, I'm going to say, you know, women 35 plus, and I know that there's men that play candy crush, but let's pretend our audience is just there. Um, that, you know, it's kind of like, well, what's the purpose here? Like, why am I just like endlessly playing level after level after like, there's really like no, why no substance to it. Um, and then, you know, in came homescapes and they say, well, let's give you a little bit of a, why, like you still have that same match three level, but now you get stars so that you can repair your mansion or garden or whatnot. Okay. Um, By the way, the, the, this example is even better because the, the match three is not the same level again and again. They have some oh, yeah. bits in the level design. It's not like you will take a chess game or, or solitaire game, you know, and this is the exactly same gameplay every time. <laughs> yep. Right. So even in the match three games, it's not the same game. It's, yeah. They're also... Absolutely. But, but, but get example that giving you the why. Yeah. The but then, game. you know, there were even, you know, players that again, had that same sort of feeling of well, why would I get a mansion? Like why, why does everyone get a mansion? Like what, what's going on here? And then, you know, in came Lily's garden by tactile games that like extended it. And yeah, you're still repairing a garden, but now you're like more wrapped into Lily's world and there's like live ops events where like suitors come and there's just like narrative story and you get such a deeper connection into the game and you know all three of those are good games and they're all doing well but i think they're serving a different subset of the population so i guess what i'm trying to get at is you know does it make sense from your perspective or have you ever done this where you know i want to make a new casual game that's maybe somewhat like this but rather than focusing on the players that already play that game do I focus on the players that by all accounts should be playing that game, but aren't? So why aren't they like, what don't they like about that game that I could maybe solve in my game to attract all those other players? Actually, it's a, it's a good question because I have a specific example, how to answer it, but <laughs> I'm not sure I can expose, you know, everything. 
Okay, because Taipei is a public company. I would just say that um, when we wanted to change the audience for one of our games, because again, let's say that you're targeting females, but, but it's not in balance, okay? Because it's like 90% females, 10% male, and you said, okay, no, no, I, I want 50-50. <laughs> I don't want 90-10. Because then 90-10, for example, is just, you're starting to add more, uh, more features or more, let's say, even tweaks that are approaching this specific segment, and you're just make, empowering it rather than balancing it. So, you know, I don't want to, I'm talking high level, so you, you don't want just to call everything in pink and to have everything cute just to address more, let's say, uh, visuals which are appealing a little bit more to females, because then I'm strengthening the, this approach rather than balancing the game. So one of the things that they're actually doing is without <laughs> giving any names, but for one of the products, we're actually duplicating it and reducing it to very, mm. very, very lean product, like an MVP version of a, of a very successful product, but very, very lean to start, let's say from scratch with just the very core gameplay. And then, you know, to see what is going to be the impact of the retention. Okay, we have a good retention. Let's add some metagame feature, but in peel, you know, like one layer after it. And not, not with a complete <laughs> vision with story and end game from day one, because we have this already. We just want to do something new and to see how we can now balance it from a very naked product with a good gameplay, but only focusing on this gameplay. No game economy, no meta game, no live ops, nothing. Just this very core gameplay in order to, to check the retention metrics. Uh, so, so this is something that we are actually doing. Yeah. So is that more of a, to just like, truly understand like what is the driving factor like of this game of, of this genre or whatnot kind of a thing yeah because then it's, you you regarding meta game you just get three different great examples okay i can have a saga map i can have some uh, you know mansion let's say or garden or whatever that i will decorate or repair or fix i can have some narrative story to advance and so on and so forth so meta game opportunities there are tons of them mm-hmm. but let's start with the very lean product let's see what uh, if the product is working and if so okay now let's add a feature from this metagame it's not going to work let's revert let's do another thing and then we are actually building up uh, bottom up um, so what would like let, let's say a match three game like what is the, like the complete core game like is it candy crush with the levels or is it like literally just the match three itself and there's no board, there's no nothing. It's like just the match three. So, so this will be just the match three, one level after another. But then we know that this product probably won't, you know, <laughs> won't bring lots of good retention metrics because there are much more, the games out there, the, the, the offerings um, way more uh, sophisticated, let's say. Uh, so if you're taking a very classic game, let's say a Beckhamon, chess, so on, so we, this could work. Just play chess, you know, with a Zen game mode, people just want to play chess, no dramatic, you know, metagame and so on. For match three, I don't see a reason that someone will only play match three one level after another today because of, you know, the, the, as I said, lots of brilliant uh, metagames that are out there. Uh, but yes, probably it will be just for first to, to 
you know, to test the mechanics, to test the experience and the onboarding of this uh, level of this gameplay, but then not to not to do like in Candy Crush that the match tree is the king and the saga is only the meta game is only supporting the match tree, but to do like in Garden State that the meta game is the king, and the match tree is what you know bring you the resources in order to advance in the meta game. Mm. You get what I'm saying? It's like now, now the the tables uh, uh, they are changing because at first it was actually the level, the game itself was the, the core gameplay. And you just progress from level to level on the saga map and so on. And it was like you know very appealing for achievers. I want to to achieve mastery in this game. Now it's more appealing to explorers. Okay. Yeah. So I just realized we're almost out of time. I I got one more question and then one more unofficial question. Um, We can go on for a long time, but this is really great. Um, Let's take um, Candy Crush to uh, Royal Match. Um, I can't play Candy Crush anymore after playing Royal Match. It has ruined me. And it it is about how the levels work and how they you know, make it so you just get so many more boosts. Like, it's just so much more fun than Candy Crush More is. engaging and um, more, yeah. And the animations and, are better. Yeah, the animations are better. It's smoother. Like, everything about it is just better, in my opinion. Again, that's limited yeah. to me. But I'm um, <laughs> if I'm stripping this down to try to understand, would it be like I strip down... And I clone exactly the Candy Crush level and I strip down and I clone exactly the Royal Match level. And then, you know, each Royal Match level and Candy Crush is effectively cloned one-to-one. So I get the core experience to understand that. I guess what I'm trying to get at is I think match three boards can be very different even at that base level of like how they function and what's going on in them. If you understand my question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, by the way, you can you you do have some narrative even in a very lean match three game right because the board although they are the same there you are connecting candies and there you are connecting cubes with uh, some royal symbols uh, over them so again your perception as a player is very narrative oriented in candy crush i believe that you know it, it's a great product <laughs> for sure i mean they, they, they are very positive and so on but it's more of a path in terms of the Saga map, as I see it. And now another product with the Saga map featuring a match B game won't work this well. And now mm. this is the reason why, for example, Royal Match is way more engaging because you're actually playing the match B game, but only to serve you in the progress of you know, decorating your, uh, your rooms and achieving your goals out there and so on and so forth. Also, there are like the, you know, the boss level, let's say, the hard level where uh, the time is against you and you see this uh, wall with the, you know, a driller uh, aiming to crush the king and it's very scary and you need to rescue him very fast. So it's a lot of, you know, motivation of how I'm rescuing and helping others and I'm uh, applying my own creativity. Uh, it's appealing to progress, uh, to curiosity, what's going to be the next home? What's going to be the next decoration? Some things that are not actually coherent to uh, Candy Crush. Mm. What is the difference between level 1,000 to level 500? You know, in, in uh, Royal Match, there are differences. In Candy Crush, they are less. Uh, so I think that, again, the, also the audience is more mature. We, we need more 
exciting uh, moments and we are looking forward. Yeah. That's great. I love it. Okay. I've got one last uh, unofficial question because we are on the mastering retention podcast, of course. And that is, you know, what's one tip or trick or lesson you've learned over the years to keep players playing for longer? Like how do you keep them coming back, you know, day after day, week after week? Hey, I will answer in, in, in uh, what is the lens that we are uh, looking on the retention game. Okay, so I, I guess that this is by the way also an industry standard. If not, then I'm happy to teach uh, our <laughs> listeners. But when we are talking about you know, a lens of uh, day one retention, then day seven and day 30. So day one retention, we're focusing on the onboarding, on the first time user experience, on the look and feel of the game, on the control, you know, how, how the UX uh, of the game is uh, performing and so on. If you are spotting an issue in day one retention, only try to attack these things. Your theme, your look and feel, uh, onboarding, as I said, first time experience and so on and so forth. If you're experiencing some issues in day seven retention, then it's not about the core gameplay, it's about the core game loop. The game economy, the return triggers, um, the depth of your game, uh, the curiosity, you know, if uh, I'm being triggered, uh, and then day 30 is about the huge aspects of the live op, social, and um, other features related to the meta game, you know, like events, competitions, so on and so forth. So this will be my tip that if you are seeing some issues in, you know, day one, day seven, day 30, most of the time I see people that are saying, okay, we have a retention problem. Let's uh, bring a leaderboard. Let's add competition. Let's add uh, events of uh, one to three. But these features are actually contributing to day therapy. If your issues are on day one, forget everything. Try to think about your tutorial, about your design, about uh, the, the metagame and the very first you know, impression of the game. And it's really important to, be, to know where to put the effort, where to put the focus according to these three different, you know, day uh, metrics, let's say, for the retention. Because most of the time I see that people are attacking the wrong problem. Their ideas are actually supporting retention. They are valid for increasing retention, but not for the accurate days. They are not targeting the accurate days, okay? Yeah, makes sense. Well, that's great. Well, Amir, thank you so much for joining us. If people do have any questions, uh, is there a good way for them to follow up with you after this? For sure, for sure, for sure, yes. I hope I can help and uh, always love this. Cool. All right. Well, I will let you go. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot, Tom. It was a pleasure. Bye. Bye-bye.